This is Dr. Alan Fine. I'm the podcast editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society, and today it is my pleasure to talk with Dr. Jeffrey Glassroth, who's professor of medicine and dean of clinical affairs at the University of Chicago. And our topic is going to be one that is a true conundrum for practicing pulmonologists, and that's how do we deal with non-tuberculous mycobacteria? And that includes when patients are colonized and when they are infected and perhaps how we tell the difference. So right before we started, I was dealing with a patient who's been my patient for several years. She's a woman about 80 years old who's had at least 25 years of documented mycobacterial avium infection. Recurrent recovery has been treated two or three times with at least year-long courses of two, three, even occasionally four drugs and doesn't want to be treated anymore. Her pulmonary function is slightly impaired, but uh, she's happy to continue her life without treatment and probably will not succumb to her NTM disease. Uh, On the other hand, occasionally we have patients who progress quite rapidly and go on to develop respiratory failure in the setting of non-tuberculous mycobacteria. So the first question I want to ask Dr. Glassroth is why uh, the increased uh, incidence of this problem? It, it seems to be popping up everywhere and at least statistically has increased several fold in the last 20 years. Well, thank you, uh, Alan, for asking me to participate in this discussion. It's a topic that I've spent a, a long time thinking about. The question you ask, like so many other questions relating to non-tuberculous mycobacteria, has more conjecture than fact. So there have been a whole array of ideas offered for why we are seeing more non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection and disease. And those observations or, or hypotheses range from things as straightforward as the aging of the population, since in many places these are conditions of older adults, middle-aged and older adults, and continue to all the immunosuppressive conditions that we've encountered or in part helped to create with various therapies. And it goes right on through to things like the fact that personal hygiene is leaning towards showering now more than bathing, and the fact that some of these bugs seem to be aerosolized. Our ability to identify these bugs has uh, improved dramatically as microbacteriology labs have become more sophisticated and more aware of these bugs. And now in the United States, we actually isolate many, many more non-tuberculous mycobacteria than MTB. So this is um, a prevalent collection of organisms, and I should say that there's over 100 species uh, of mycobacteria, so there are many, many, many non-tuberculous mycobacteria with more being um, identified or named as we go along. So, uh, Dr. Glassroth, one problem that we're continually faced with is when to pursue the diagnosis. I've, again, had several patients this week where following an episode of cough, 
patient gets a, an x-ray and then perhaps a, a CT scan and the radiologist reports uh, classic tree and bud findings with bronchiectasis. By the pe- time the patient sees me, they're feeling quite well. Do we need to uh, make that diagnosis? When, when do we need to pursue the diagnosis? And is imaging enough uh, in low, low-risk patients? Well, that's, that's like so many other things with uh, non-tuberculous mycobacteria. There's, there's almost no bad question you can ask, and that's a, a good one. And it's a real conundrum sometimes. Sometimes it's very obvious. Uh, we have patients who, for example, have in, uh, recalcitrant coughs that are really um, setting sleep, uh, really becoming um, difficult for the patient. And in those cases, we, we certainly want to think about this. That's a fairly common pattern of presentation. Other people, we find uh, abnormalities on a chest x-ray or a CT scan done for some symptom or for uh, another reason. And that becomes pretty obvious when we try to explain what those things are about. The ones that are really difficult, I think, are the ones where the complaints by the patient are minimal. The radiographic abnormalities may be very subtle, the uh, scattered tree and bud or some small nodules. And I think the answer to the question, for me at least, comes down to how significant is the clinical presentation, radiographic abnormality, symptoms? What's the patient like otherwise? Are there comorbidities? Are there medications that the patient's taking that could make even a a subtle presentation turn out to be an aggressive problem with a little bit of time? And so those are the, the kinds of things that I think we have to weigh when we consider whether to go after this because, you know, quite frankly, deciding when to treat or whether to treat is, is always difficult or often difficult with these patients. And sometimes, as in perhaps the lady you were describing at the outset, the treatment uh, literally can be worse than the, the disease itself. So this is not an easy issue and it requires a lot of consideration and individualization. I think individualization is definitely uh, what we end up doing in these patients. Now, now when we get a culture, do, do we have to look at uh, resistance patterns and sensitivity, or is it enough just to generically treat these patients with a uh, standard regimen? What's your thoughts on that? There's been a lot of debate on that point. Uh, I think in general, we feel that many uh, of the more commonly encountered bugs, uh, M. avium in in the U.S., for example, we um, generally don't get a lot of information from susceptibilities in the sense that the most important, the cornerstone drugs for that particular bug that's never been treated before are macrolides. And we um, take, at least for the time, for the present time, we assume and take as a, almost an article of faith the fact that all wild type, that has never been exposed to, to drugs for any significant time, all wild type M. avium are, are susceptible to macrolides. And so we go ahead and treat. There are lots of guidelines for this treatment. The ATS and IDSA have provided very good guidelines that are available. 
for other bugs, we will suggest some drug testing. Emabscesis, I think, is a, a good example of this. And it's not necessarily so much drug testing, but it's there. It's an issue of subspeciation. So we know, for example, that M. abscessus, which is a notoriously difficult to treat non-tuberculous mycobacteria, it's one of the rapidly growing mycobacteria, actually has at least three subspecies, two of which are, are virtually certain to be or to become rapidly, when exposed to macrolide, resistant. That is, they have inducibility for macrolide resistance. But the third which may account for 15 or 20% of the M. abscessus that we see, M. abscessus subspecies massilienses, actually is quite susceptible to macrolide. And we can actually have a reasonable chance with a macrolide-containing regimen fortified with other drugs of, um, of actually having a, a good outcome. Patients who are, have been treated before, we do want to obtain susceptibilities, and usually the panels include a variety of drugs which are customized for the particular species. Macrolides are often included, aminoglycosides are often included, and then particularly for the rapidly growing organisms, we'll use some non-tuberculous and non-mycobacterial drugs. They can be macrolides plus uh, an aminoglycoside like amikacin, sufoxidin, imipenem is uh, sometimes tested and will go that way. And again, I think for people who aren't familiar with some of these bugs, either getting some help or at least going back and looking at some of the, the guidelines can be very, very important because um, there, there are subtle but important differences uh, between the species in terms of how we approach them. But then again, you, we always come back to this question of do we treat now or do we defer treatment? And that's, you know, that's your earlier question, and that's a very difficult one and one for which we don't have a lot of guidance. You know, do we do better treating early or does it not make much difference and can we wait a while and observe and only treat if there's evident progression and progression over what period of time? These are, these are still really open questions. And I would just add, and I'd like to hear your comment about the issue of uh, relapse, since um, even after we seem to be effectively treating this group of infections, many of them come back, as was the case in the patient that I described at the beginning. Yeah, and we don't completely understand why some people who seem to be have the same burden of disease initially, who have the same bug, who are all treated with the same drugs, um, why they can have different courses over time. And I would also add that for years, we really viewed these, these organisms through the lens, through the metrics of MTB, and they're very, very different. They're much more slowly progressive. These are really, for the most part, these tend to be chronic conditions, that, and you can't use acute or subacute criteria. And they play out over periods of, of years even, as with your patient, and in that sense really are rather unlike uh, M. tuberculosis. And again, we have more questions than we have answers for why these different outcomes seem to occur. Did the patient not take the medicine in the way they were prescribed? Did they not absorb uh, as well? Do they have subtle immunologic aberrancies? 
Do they have aberrancies of clearance, like very subtle um, defects in their CFTR, the cystic fibrosis transmembrane uh, regulator? We know that in some proportion of our patients, there are abnormalities, genetic abnormalities, that may or may not be uh, associated with sweat chloride abnormalities and often are not associated with uh, a CF phenotype as we typically think of it. So we're learning more about these things, but much of the literature doesn't really control for them. And that doesn't even begin to get into perhaps uh, subtle differences in the organism itself. Do various strains within a species have differences that affect virulence that, that we simply haven't recognized yet? I think all of this is still ripe for, for lots of study. So uh, the upcoming uh, issue of the annals is highlighting uh, some of the new work being done in non-tuberculous mycobacteria, and your editorial uh, is definitely one that we're looking forward to reading. So I wondered if you could highlight some of the takeaways from the upcoming issue. What, what would you tell the uh, practicing community about well, NPM treatment? Yeah, I'd offer a number of thoughts on that, uh, and I should say that the editorial was uh, a joint effort with Chuck Daly uh, at National Jewish Health Center. The issue is actually, I think, going to be a very interesting one. There's some epidemiologic information, some several reports that indicate the um, prevalence, incidence and prevalence of these infections and disease seems to be increasing worldwide and perhaps morbidity and mortality as well with that. There are several articles that speak to the guidelines that I've referenced a couple of times uh, in our conversation. And the fact that perhaps not surprisingly, a lot of clinicians who do encounter these infections don't really adhere to the guidelines and they have different views on why they don't. Some of them don't believe that the infections really need to be treated. Some of them feel the treatments are, are too difficult to administer. There are a number of reasons given, and this is so for non-specialists and specialists alike, although there are some differences in those patterns. And then on the therapeutic end, there are two provocative, but I would say, and I think the authors would say, small, not yet definitive studies. One that looks at whether or not a drug we typically incorporate in our regimens uh, for amavium, whether or not rifamycin, rifampin, needs to be included with the macrolide and the ethambutol that is almost always in, in the regimen. That's, uh, I, I don't think it's exactly heresy, but it's a real departure from practice, certainly from guidelines. But I would hasten to add that it's a small study done in one center and while provocative, I, I wouldn't yet say that this is ready for prime time. And I would also add that the follow-up is brief. In fact, really, this looks at time to sterilization. And again, as I said a few moments ago, these are bugs that play out their clinical life, their natural history conditions that play out their natural history over long periods of time, and it's really hard to draw conclusions from relatively short-term studies. The other study is a bit different. It, um, I think, takes the tack that many of us have talked about, that if we aren't going to have a lot of new drugs, maybe there are better ways or other ways of administering drugs, and we've 
become uh, fairly comfortable now administering aerosolized aminoglycosides, particularly tobramycin, to patients, particularly cystics. And so the question now is posed, well, can we administer aminoglycosides like amikacin, for example, to our patients with non-tuberculous mycobacteria by aerosol? And can we get higher concentrations and improve outcome in that way? And again, this is a study that's limited in its scope, and I think it's hard to draw uh, a lot of conclusions and certainly to make recommendations based on it. But again, it's quite provocative, and it suggests that, in fact, in a, in a proportion of patients with M. avium or M. obsessus, that giving aerosolized drug may be useful or perhaps non-inferior to the other regimens that we use. However, a cautionary note is also struck in this paper because there is a fair amount of toxicity even through the aerosolized approach. So I guess no, no free lunch, but it's interesting and I think it's worth continuing the studies in larger groups of patients and perhaps with other organisms and some additional controls. So very, very provocative stuff, but uh, like so much else uh, in the literature relating to these organisms, tantalizing but not definitive. Well, we are definitely looking forward to uh, yours and Dr. Daly's editorial on treatment of pulmonary non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection. As you have said, many questions remain, and uh, I, I hope that the information will be a spur to conduct the many studies that are needed in this uh, increasingly common condition. So uh, I want to thank Dr. Glassroth for sharing his thoughts and intuitions with us and wish him and the rest of our listening community a great holiday season. Thank you very much.